Okay, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And this is, this is one of the most popular scriptures, kind of passages in the Bible, and specifically in Ephesians. Like when you think of Ephesians, a lot of people naturally kind of gravitate to this idea of, of spiritual warfare. And so we've said over the last couple of weeks, as we've kind of been um, working through this, that, that we are in a spiritual war. Now, that isn't the only imagery the Bible uses to describe the Christian life, but it's definitely a prevalent imagery that the Bible uses to describe the Christian life. And so I think it's important that you just take a second and ask the question, does my life reflect that there is a war going on? Like, does my life reflect that I'm living in wartime, not in peacetime? Like, the demeanor by which I live, the urgency by which I live, the pace of life by which I live, when I think of how we spend how we think, how, how we do all of these things that reflect that, that you're living in the midst of a spiritual conflict, a war. Okay, so, so we're in the middle of the spiritual conflict. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop um, in the early uh, parts of the 19th century, he said this about the spiritual warfare. There is a war of far greater importance than any war ever waged by, me, uh, by man. It's a war that concerns not just two uh, or three nations, but every Christian man and woman born into the world. The warfare that I speak of is spiritual warfare. It's the fight that everyone who is saved must fight for the sake of his own soul. So he's saying, just along with Paul here, that we are in the midst of a conflict. That there is a real conflict that's happening. And we've talked about how this conflict is the clash of these two kingdoms, where you've got the unseen and expanding kingdom of God that's colliding with and clashing with this unseen and crumbling kingdom of Satan. And how we live on the friction point. We live at the clash of these two kingdoms. And it makes this conflict inevitable. You're in it. When you're, when you are born, when you come out of the womb, you come into war. This is the idea. When you crawl out of bed, you crawl onto the battlefield. When you're, when you're driving in your car, you're driving through the conflict. When you're at your workplace, you're in the middle of the war zone. This is the idea that in every part of your life, it is spiritual warfare. Okay, so we spent several weeks trying to define and get a biblical vantage point by which to look at this war. Okay, now last week we started to make the turn. And we're making the turn and trying to ask this question. How do we stand in the midst of this war? If you look at verses 10 through 14, those five verses stand, or this, this imperative to stand, to resist, is mentioned, is mentioned four times in five verses. So this is what Paul's getting at. In the midst of this war, you're not just supposed to fight. You're not just supposed to survive. You are supposed to set up resistance and stand it well. Like this is the idea here. This is what we're supposed to do. So then the question becomes, how do we do that? Okay, so that's the piece of this that we're in now. How do we stand? How do we set up resistance? How do we do these things? Okay, verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10, gives us kind of the first clue in this. And we looked at this a little bit last week. Um, first thing Paul says is, is you've got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so here's what Paul's saying. To resist, it requires God's strength. Like if you're going to resist, if you're going to stand in this sort of a conflict, it requires the strength of God to do that. Okay, if you look at Ephesians 6.12, see that passage? Spiritual forces of evil, cosmic, these cosmic powers, rulers and authorities. Here's one of the things Paul is saying in Ephesians 6.12, that you don't have the capacity to win a conflict with them. This is not man-to-man, gun-to-gun, sword-to-sword. This is man versus spirit. 
and, and you don't have the capacity to win that conflict. And this is why the first thing we've got to recognize in the midst of this war, if we're going to stand, is that we have got to look to and run to Christ. Like if we want to be victorious in this war, it requires us to run to Christ the victor. This is the idea. If you want to stand, then you've got to strengthen yourself in God. You've got to put on his strength. Okay, so this is what Paul's saying in verse 10. That if you want to stand, if you want to set up this resistance, then you have got to run to it requires the strength of God. Now, when I look at that, here's the first thought that I think. That sounds really abstract. That doesn't sound very earthy, right? That doesn't sound like um, something that's very practical to do. How do you strengthen yourself in God? What does that look like? And so Paul doesn't leave us blind here. Look at verse 11. I think he starts to tell us what this looks like in verse 11. Strengthen yourself in, in, in God. And this is how, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. This is how we strengthen ourselves. If we want to resist, it requires the resources that only God can provide. If you want to resist, it requires those resources. Okay, now this is where Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the best preachers, greatest preachers of the last century. Here's what he said commenting on, on these verses. He says there's three dangers when it comes to spiritual warfare. Here's the first one. The first one is thinking that there is no warfare, right? That there's, there's no war going on. And this is where some of us find ourselves. That we're, we're oblivious to this fact that there is a real spiritual conflict happening. Second one, he says, is this. is thinking you can avoid the warfare. Thinking that you can kind of escape it, that it's avoidable, right? Okay, and here's the third one. <clears throat> the third mistake people make with this, the third danger is trying to fight with the wrong weapons. That if you try, if you try to go to the battlefield with the wrong weapons, you're already beat. You, you can't, you do not have the capacity within you to win this conflict. This is the idea that Paul's getting at here. And so we, we kind of tried to introduce the, the armor of God last week, these resources of God in verse 11, and we said a couple of things about them. Look at verse 11 there. We, we just use these words around armor. First of all, we said it's God's armor. You put on the whole armor of God. This is God's armor. This is his resources. God in the Bible is depicted as a warrior king that has clothed himself with everything he needs to win the battle. And and when you start, when you get into Ephesians chapter six, here's what Paul's saying, that this warrior king readied for war, he starts to give you his armor. He starts to give you his resources. So this is how we define the armor of God last week. We said it's it's what God gives us in the gospel. It is all that you are and all that you have in the gospel. This is what the armor is. The armor is what you have and what you are in the gospel. And so this has been one of my hopes as we kind of travel through these pieces of armor, is that God would begin to expand how we see what we have and how we see what we are. Because I just think a lot of us, and this is what the old Puritans used to say, a lot of us are living below our privileges. And so we've got to understand what we have and what we are in the gospel. So this is God's armor. It's something he gives to us. Okay, and you got the word right before the armor. It's whole armor. It's complete. Everything that needs covering is covered. Everything that needs protecting is is protected. God gives you in this armor everything you need to resist every plot and ploy of Satan against you. This is the idea. It's complete armor. Okay, now here's the imperative of verse 11. He says this, this armor has to be put on. 
We have to put this armor of God, this whole armor of God on. Okay, this is the idea. When you become a Christian, get this imagery here. When you become a Christian, it's as if God gives you in a present all of this armor. He puts it at your feet. He provides it to you. But here comes the hard work of of developing this putting on the armor, this grace-dependent hard work of strapping it on, of putting it on, of thinking and applying these gospel truths. Okay, so we've got to put these things on. And let me just preface it with this again. We said this last week, and we're going to see this throughout the next couple of weeks. Putting on the armor of God is very difficult work. It requires you to think. It requires you to really run hard after it, to figure out what it is and how it applies to your life. So he's saying, you've got to put this armor on. That takes us to verse 14. Look down at verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6. Here's what Paul says. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is what we looked at last week. Fastening on the belt of truth. It's not an offensive or a defensive weapon. It's a foundational piece of the armor. This is what the belt of truth is. You don't kill people with the belt, right? And we kind of laughed last week, unless your dad was just crazy. He might have, you know? And so, but typically you don't kill people with the belt. It's a foundational piece of, a piece of armor, piece of equipment for the Roman soldier. It's what allows everything else to work rightly. Okay, this is what truth is for the Christian. Okay, we defined it last week as it's this God-given and precious gift of the scriptures. This is truth. So we've got the hard work of developing these habits where we read the Bible and then we apply the Bible. We think about what it's saying and how it applies to our life. That's how we fasten on the belt of truth. Okay, now this week we're in the next part of verse 14. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, second piece of the armor, second remedy, for Satan's plots and ploys, is the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, so if you can picture Paul in a prison, he's writing this from a prison cell, and, and he, he's thinking through, what can I equate the righteousness of Christ to a believer? What can I equate that to? Like, I'm looking at this Roman um, guard here. I, I've got this picture of a Roman soldier ready for war. What can I equate? What can I, what can I put this righteousness of God? How can I give this metaphor to bring the force of this? So he's looking over this Roman guard and he looks at the breastplate and says, that is it. I mean, th- this is the righteousness of God. This is what it does for a believer. Okay, so think about what a breastplate is. A breastplate would be this, this covering that would protect the vital organs of a soldier, right? This is the breastplate. Okay, as the ways of war developed, you've got this molded piece of metal. Maybe you think gladiator, right? Where, where he looks at this, this molded piece of metal with leather strapped around it that he would fasten on to cover his vital organs. So his lungs, his heart, his liver, I mean, all these things are vital to a person. He's saying this is what the breastplate of righteousness does. This righteousness of Christ covers the vital organs. So put this in the context of a soldier. A soldier could lose a finger and make it, right? I mean, it's a bad day to lose a finger. Like, I like my fingers. I like my, I don't want to lose those things, right? But... You get a band-aid and some ice and you're probably going to survive, right? Okay, take a leg. Now, I like my legs. I like my arms, right? I don't want to lose those. I want to keep those. But if you're a soldier and a bomb rips your arm off or rips your leg off, if that happens, as long as there's a doctor there, they can stop the bleeding, chances are you're going to make it. 
But when your lung gets ripped through, when a bullet would explode a heart, right? When your liver gets torn into pieces, that's not a bad day. That's your last day, right? I mean, this is the idea. This is what happens when when your vital organs um, get severed, when they get cut, when they get torn into pieces. I mean, it's it's log off the computer shutting down. This is the idea. So, so Paul's looking at this and he's saying, this is what the breastplate of righteousness does. It protects everything that's vital for you. I mean, this is, this is this essential component that, that makes sure your vital organs are protected. Okay, so let me push pause here. And here's, here's what we've got to do now. We've got to connect this and help you see and help us see how this, how this connects to your daily life. Okay, so let me make this statement. We'll try to explain it. Every person on the planet wears a breastplate. Everybody wears one. You wear one, I wear one. The question is, what is your breastplate? That's the question. Okay, last week we, we, we looked to Genesis chapter three as we, at, at Genesis chapter three as we kind of work through Adam and Eve. Remember this? And when they fell, when they bit this, this baited hook, we worked through this story in Genesis chapter three to show how truth had become fuzzy. The commands of God had become distorted. The character of God was marred in, in their minds. And so we, we saw that when that happened, when truth became fuzzy, they, they, they bit the baited hook. Okay. Now I want to show you what happened right after they bit the bait. Okay. So it's the next scene in Genesis chapter three. Okay, it'll be on the screen for you. If you want to flip there, feel free. But this is the next scene. They sin. They bite the hook that Satan had baited. And now this is what happens. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what it says. Then the eyes, this is right after they sin. Then the eyes of both Adam and Eve, both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. This is the first thing that happens. They look around and they have this discovery of, I don't have clothes and I need them. Okay, this is, okay now, now, it's important that we make this link here. This is bigger than I'm naked. This is bigger than I don't have clothes on. This is bigger than that. Genesis is showing us something here about the human heart. Okay, now, now go pre-fall before they bit the hook. This is the, this is the setting in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are in perfect harmony with God. Okay, now listen to this. They have the approval of God. They are presentable to God. They are righteous before God, before they sin. Here's what righteousness means. Righteousness means that you have been examined and that you have been approved. This is righteousness. And before they sinned, they were righteous before God. God examined them and they were approved in his sight. They were, they were presentable to God. When Adam and Eve sinned, their presentability went out the door. When Adam and Eve sinned, the approval of God changed for them. And listen, they were made for this approval. If you're a human being created in the image of God, you are made to live in and live under the approval of God. You are made to live presentable to God. But as soon as they sinned, their approval, their presentability, all of those things changed. They were no longer righteous before God. And that's what it means to be naked before God. It means that they looked around and saw 
I need something to cover myself before him. I need something to make up for what has been lost before him. We are no longer okay like this. So they looked around and they realized that they were naked. This is what it means there. Okay, now now look at what they do. As soon as they see that they are no longer righteous, approved, presentable for God, look at what happens in the second half of verse 7. This is their first response. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, this is bigger than fig leaves. Okay, this is just a symbolic thing of what's happening here. As soon as they realized that they were naked before God, that they needed a covering, that they had lost their righteousness before God, here's what they did. They went on the desperate hunt for fig leaves, for a covering, for something to be able to stand between them and their unpresentable self and God. They they went on this desperate search for that. I mean, they're running after fig leaves to make themselves okay with themselves. This is what's happening. They go on this desperate search for fig leaves. Okay, so what does this mean? Here's what it means. Let me state this clearly. It means that every person on the planet is on a desperate search for approval and presentability. Everyone. You are. I am. Every person on the planet in this desperate search for presentability. Every human being. Okay, now now think about this. This isn't just an abstract idea. This is earthy. This this affects how you, when you get up tomorrow and you live life tomorrow, this, this leaks into everything that you do and the reason that you do it. This search for a, a like presentability and to be approved by someone and something. Blaise Pascal, he was a French philosopher a few centuries back. Now, don't hold the French thing against him. He was really smart, all right? And so, so this is what he said. He, he, he kind of correlated this to this idea of, he called it the disinherited prince principle. That in every person, there is something deep down in their heart where they know that they were at one time a prince or a princess, but they have lost that. That before sin, that there was this prince-like relationship. They were presentable. They were righteous before God. But with sin, with the fall, they have lost that prince-like relationship. And now they spend, here's what he says, now they spend the rest of their life trying to gain what they lost in the garden. So here's what that means for you. That you walked in here this morning and you are looking for someone or to something to make yourself okay with you. See, we all wear this breastplate. We all have something that when we look into the mirror, we hold up and say, this is what makes me okay with me. This is what makes me a pretty good person. This is why I can kind of hold my head up and and kind of chin high and go on with life. This kind of justifies why I can keep living. Every one of us have that. It's not a question of of if you have a breastplate. The question is, what do you wear? Okay, so let me give you some examples of this. Some of us came in the doors this morning, and you know what our breastplate is? It's our job, how we can perform. And so this is the guy that finds his identity in, his meaning in, his approval in, his work. And so when he stands before the mirror, the thing that makes him okay with him is that he's not a bum like those people. 
I mean, look at the business that he's built. Look, look at the success that he's had. Look at the money that he's made. Look at how well he can work. Okay, so th- this is that person that finds their identity in their job. They've made a fig leaf. They, they've made this breastplate out of what they do. Okay, so we could take the, uh, we could take the guy that is upset, like the, the fanatic workout guy. This guy, right? I mean, you don't see him without like muscle milk and protein bars, you know? I mean, every day is like a four-hour workout. This guy. Okay, so this guy, what, what, what allows him to stand in front of the mirror and say, all right, I'm okay with this, is that he can look in at the mirror and say, my bench press is freaking amazing, right? I mean, you should see the size of my bicep. I mean, you should, you should see this. You should see the shape of my body compared to those bumps. So, so we, our approval, our presentability is based on the, the shape of our body. Okay, think about the 20-year-old girl that bounces from one boyfriend to the next. You, you know what's happening there? Is she is seeking, like she is wearing this breastplate of the approval of men in her life. So she'll go from one to the next to the next, seeking approval that she has lost from God. That she doesn't have from God. Think about this if you're a mom. Maybe this is in the context of parenting. That your breastplate is your parenting. Your breastplate is your kids. So if your kids turn out okay, you're okay. If your kids kind of work out okay, if they love you, if they respect you, if they do well in life, then you're okay in life. This is like a real tempting breastplate for ladies to wear. It's real tempting fig leaves to put on. We base our meaning and significance. What allows us to look in the mirror and say, I'm okay today, is that my kids are doing okay. I love my kids a little bit more than those bums do. Like, I I take care of my kids. I'm a little better parent than those people are. Like, this is what allows us to kind of hold our chin up high, right? This is the idea. For some of us, it's religion that we do this with. So religion is our breastplate. The fact that that we don't cuss but about once a month, right? I mean, the fact that we go to church, we even tithe at church. We we read our Bible. We're so much better than those people. Thank God we're not like them, right? So so we're, we we make ourselves presentable to ourselves. We we seek approval in what we do. How many of you have seen chariots of fire? Some of y'all, like you're kind of dating yourself probably just a little bit there, right? So it's, it's a movie in the early 80s that depicts this story and kind of tells this story of Eric Little. He was an English sprinter, and it kind of puts the counterpart in the story, this guy named Harold Abrams. And Harold Abrams ended up winning the, the 1924 Olympic gold medal in the 100-meter dash, right? So, so he wins this gold medal. Now, at the end of that movie, right before Harold Abrams is going out to run this race, I, I want to show you what he says. And this is like a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about here. That he's wearing a breastplate, just like you wear a breastplate. Here was his breastplate. This is kind of one of these concluding conversations in the, in the movie. Um, he says this. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And now, in an hour's time... I will be out there again. He's about to run this last race. I will be out there again on the track. I will raise my eyes, look down that quarter, that 100 meters, and listen to what he says, and have only 10 seconds to justify my existence. See his breastplate? We all wear one. 
The question is, what are you, what are you justifying your existence on? What are you using to, to make yourself presentable to people? This is the question. Okay, now here is the beauty of the gospel. Okay, this is the gospel right here. That in Christ, Christ gives us righteousness. He gives us this battle-tested breastplate. This is what Christ does in the gospel. This breastplate is dependable. It's durable. It has been forged in the crucible of conflict. This is the gospel to you. Okay, now if you go forward in Genesis chapter 3, here's what you'll find. Adam and Eve, they, they make themselves fig leaves. They put them on. This is their breastplate. This is their covering. Then if you come down in Genesis chapter 3 to verse 21, here's what you'll find happening. God looks at them in their fig leaves and he goes and kills some innocent animals. He slaughters innocent animals. He takes their skin and he forms them into coverings from Adam and Eve. He he makes Adam some shorts. He gives a skirt to Eve. He makes a covering for them. And it's this foreshadowing of what God is going to do in Christ for the people of God. That he is going to send, send this sinless substitute. He's going to put him, nail him to a cross where he will be slayed for our sin to make a covering for us. To make a breastplate for us. This is what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. It's this foreshadowing of this breastplate of righteousness. This battle-tested breastplate that Christ gives to us in the gospel. Okay, now, now go back a couple of books to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I want to try to define what this breastplate is in 2 Corinthians 5. Just in this one single verse that depicts the gospel for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it. That Christ gives this battle-tested breastplate. This is, this is what the breastplate is. And by the way, this is like a, a one-verse summary of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. First half of the verse goes like this. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. This is, if you think of the gospel as a coin, this is one side of the coin. Okay, so, so, On the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us. All this sin that was stacked against us was thrown onto Jesus. All this guilt that was aimed at us and given to us with our sin was heaped onto Jesus. All this condemnation that that weights us was thrown onto Jesus. All the shame that we rightfully have and are subjected to, Jesus took for us. This is what happens on the cross. That on the cross, one side of the gospel, that all of our sin is stacked onto Jesus. He becomes our substitute. He becomes sin for us. Now this is the other half of the gospel. The second half of the verse. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is side two of the gospel. That we're not just pardoned from our sin but we're perfected in Christ. You see that? That It's not just that God excuses your sin. That's just one half the gospel. It's also that God infuses the perfect righteousness of Christ into you. This is the other half. 
That we're not just pardoned, but we have become perfect in Christ. That when God looks at us, he sees the perfect Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the favored Jesus, the approved Jesus, the presentable Jesus, the righteous Jesus. This is the gospel. Our sin stacked onto Jesus, his perfection, his righteousness stacked onto us. Isn't that beautiful? This is what theologians call imputation. Jesus is imputed. He is given our sin. And then Jesus' righteousness is imputed. It is given to us. This is the beauty of this. And this is what Paul is saying in, in Ephesians 6, verse 14. That you need this battle-tested righteousness in the war. You need this. That you don't have to depend on the fig leaves of your performance. You don't have to depend on the fig leaves of your parenting. You don't have to depend on the fig leaf of your marriage for approval, of the acceptance of your mom and dad for approval, that God has given you in Christ all the approval, all the presentability, all the righteousness that you could dream of. That's the gospel. This is this battle-tested breastplate of righteousness that Christ gives to us. Okay, this is why John Piper, he said this, kind of commenting on this, that in the gospel, God becomes, listen to this, 100% irrevocably for us at the moment we see Christ as our beautiful Savior and receive him as our substitute punishment and our substitute perfection. You see that? This, this is the battle-tested breastplate of righteousness. That, that when God looks at you in Christ, he sees perfection. You're presentable now in Christ. Maybe you can think of it this way. In Christ, the disinherited prince is readopted and renamed a prince or a princess. You see that? Okay, now this is what Paul's saying now. The, the, the righteousness of Christ, Christ's righteousness, it readies you for war. That you need this in the conflict. Okay, remember verse 13. Look back at verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 6. You see that phrase, the day of evil? In the day of evil, this is when the air raid sirens are going off. Bombs are dropping. Bullets are flying. Temptations are turned up. And then this is, in the day of evil, this is when Satan starts to live up to his name in, in Revelation 12. When it calls him the accuser of the brethren. Okay, so in the day of evil, he starts to accuse the people of God. Okay, so Tim Keller gives a real helpful analogy of this. Here's, here's how he kind of walks through this. He says, in the day of evil, picture, picture your conscience as an engine. Okay, so it's the engine of your car. It's what kind of moves your car forward. It's, it's the engine. On the day of evil, Satan steps on the accelerator of your conscience. You know, think about this with me. And listen, your conscience is a good thing. This is what keeps us out of prison. This is why you don't kill people when they cut you off, right? Your conscience is that thing. Men, this is why your wives have not killed you yet. They have a conscience. See, this is a good thing. So a conscience, when it's working well and, and it's healthy, is a beautiful, God-given thing where we discern right from wrong, right? Okay, so this is your conscience. But in the day of evil, Satan steps on the accelerator of your conscience. The RPM start to rev. The engine of your conscience starts to race and your conscience starts to work in overdrive, throwing accusation after accusation. So this is what this sounds like in the day of evil. You are worthless. You have failed 3,000 times today. Why don't you give up? 
I mean, look at your life. You're ridiculous. You're despicable. When God looks at you, he sees a failure. You, you are, God, God is ashamed of you. You're a disappointment to God. Look at your prayerlessness. God isn't going to hear you now. Look at your wordlessness. Don't you dare touch that Bible. You're not worthy of that Bible. You are damaged goods to God. This is what you are. You're shamed. You're shunned. These are these accusations that flow on the day of evil. Okay, now I don't know if you have them. But, but here's what, here's what I know about Christians who are pursuing God and who are trying to fast and put on this belt, belt, breastplate of righteousness. They have these days. If you read Christian history, most of the great saints in Christian history have vivid days like that. And if you're trying to put on the armor of God, you will have days like this. And so here, this becomes the question. What do you do when your conscience is running out of control? What do you do in that moment? Do, do you, do you, do you kind of hold up your fig leaves and do you say, but no, look at this. Look at how good of a parent I am. Look at my, look at how, look at what I can produce at work. Look at my body. Look at, look at my religious deeds. I mean, is that what you hold up? You hold up these fig leaves to try to make yourself presentable in the day of evil where Satan has already convinced you that you're not presentable? I mean, it doesn't work. When we appeal to our own righteous deeds, our man-made fig leaves, they never stop the fiery darts of the enemy. The fiery darts always run through those things. This is where Jerry Bridges would say that your righteousness, Satan will always find a chink in the armor, right? He will always find a way in when it's your righteousness at stake. But here is, here's how this readies us for battle. Instead, we get to rip these fig leaves of approval. All these things that we have searched for approval in, we get to rip these things off and we get to put on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Where now when God looks at us, we know that all these accusations are not true. That we are not damaged goods. That we are not a disappointment to God. We are like Jesus to God. This is how it readies you for war. This is how it readies you. Okay, so now here's the question. How do you put on this breastplate of righteousness? And let me preface it again. This is hard work to do this. Really hard work. This is how it's done. It's the daily discipline of gospel discovery. That's, that's step one. Step two, it's the daily task of gospel preaching. This is how you fasten on, put on the breastplate of righteousness. So let's take each of these and we'll be done. Number one, the daily discipline of gospel discovery. If you do not know what you have and what you are in the gospel, then you are going to live far below your privileges as a Christian. And the only way to know what you have and what you are in the gospel is to daily go on discovery missions in the gospel. It's it's the only way to do it. It's the daily discipline of gospel discovery where you are growing in your gospel awareness, where you are learning more and more of what you have and what you are in the gospel. Okay, now, now think about, um, think about Ephesians 3, 8. 
where Paul's going to call the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ. You remember this in Ephesians 3 eight, The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the gospel. And that doesn't mean that you can't search the gospel. It means that you can spend the rest of your life searching into the gospel and never get to the bottom of it. That's what it means that they're unsearchable. That it's a bottomless treasure chest. So here's the imagery we've used to describe this. If you consider the gospel a treasure chest that we set on the table in your house, and we open up that treasure chest and we see that, wow, this is, this is a priceless treasure. There is more, there is more gold in that than we could ever dare get to the bottom of. Okay, now this becomes the job of a Christian. We start to search in those unsearchable riches. So we start to pull out coins and we start to dip our hands in and bring out this treasure. And we get to hold these things up and look at them and and discover what they are, how they apply, um, what we are, what we have in the gospel. But here's what happens for most of us. We set that unsearchable treasure on the, the table. We open it up. We pull out one coin. We look at it and say, that is awesome. I mean, that's a beautiful coin. I cannot imagine that I own a coin like that now. We shut the treasure chest. We stuff it under the bed. And we set the one coin on our nightstand where it collects dust. And if we do that, if we do not daily jump into gospel discovery, we're going to be depending on one coin when there's an infinite treasure chest under the bed. So so this is what it means, that we have this daily task of reading the Bible, discovering all that we are, all that we have in the gospel. And this is what happens when you do that. You begin to see your life completely different. Okay, so I've got a list here, a two-page list I'm about to read through. These are gospel discoveries that you're going to make if you'll keep the treasure chest open and daily reach your hand in. So look at the screen. I'm going to rattle these things off as quick as I can. But look at the screen. This is gospel discovery. This is what's at stake for you, for you to know and you to believe these things. So so watch what we are and what we have in the gospel here. This is the status created in the past affecting our present. Okay, so because of the work of past, because of the work of Christ, this is our present condition. Here's what we'll say. I am adopted as his child. So now God is my father. I am the re-inherited, right? I am the re-adopted prince. Number two, I am a son of God and one in Christ. Number three, I'm an heir of God since I am a son of God. I am his friend. I am a member of his body. Because of the work of Christ, I am a member of God's household. I belong to God. I am included. I am a citizen of heaven. I have been chosen by God. I am chosen and dearly loved by God. I am chosen before the creation creation of the world. I am a part of a chosen race, a a royal priesthood. Because of the work of Christ, I am no longer condemned. I am a new creation. I am alive with him. Because of the work of Christ, I am blameless. I have been justified. I have been given God's uh, glorious grace lavishly and without restriction. I have redemption in him through his blood. I am forgiven. I am God's workmanship. I am a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. I am the right Righteousness of God because of the work of Christ. I am secure. I am protected. I am at peace with God because of Christ. Okay, current life, because of what Christ has done, look at what this says about our current life. 
I am his disciple. I have access to the Father. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I have a right to come boldly before the throne of God to find mercy and find grace in times of need. I am prayed for by Jesus. Think about that, that Jesus is your advocate. He is your intercessor. I am not alone. I have hope. I am assured of all all things working together for my good. I know there's a purpose for my suffering. I am not in want. I am promised an abundant life. I can be content in any situation because of what Christ has done. I am faithful because of the work of Christ. I am righteous and holy. I am his co-worker. I am now a minister of reconciliation because of the work of Christ. I can bring glory to God. I can, I can gain spiritual maturity. Maturity. I can be kind and compassionate to others. I can forgive others. I can understand what God's will is. I can give thanks regardless in anything for anything. I don't have to always have my own agenda. I can honor God through our marriage regardless of how difficult it is. I can parent my children with composure. I can, I can find strength and be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. I am more than a conqueror because of what Christ has done. You see this? Can okay, I think about these future promises that the gospel brings and assures us. Because of the work of Christ, I am promised eternal life. Because of the work of Christ, I am blameless at the final judgment. Because of the work of Christ, I am victorious over death, sin, and the law. Because of the work of Christ, I'll resemble him when he returns. I'll look like Jesus when he returns. Because of the work of Christ, I am qualified to share in his inheritance. Because of the work of Christ, I am confident that God will complete the work he began in me. Do you see the gospel discovery and what's at stake here? If you don't go on the constant, the daily constant discovery of gospel treasure, you are going to live your life below your privileges. You see this. This is why it's so important that we have this daily discipline of gospel discovery, finding and searching what we have, what we are in the gospel. Second thing is that we have this this daily task of preaching, gospel preaching. Okay, now this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying grab your Bible, go on a street corner and preach to them. I am saying, read your Bible, think about your Bible, develop sermons so that you can preach them to yourself. This is what we're saying. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used to say this, and this is, this is a profound thought. He said, if you ever stop to think about that almost all of your troubles in life are due to the fact that you listen to yourself, you don't preach to yourself. See, in the day of evil, we start to listen to ourselves. We start to listen to these accusations. And you know the difference between an accusation and conviction? Conviction is brought on by the Holy Spirit to show you your sin so you will run to Jesus. Accusations are brought on by Satan to show you your, your sin so you will run from Jesus. And in the day of evil, the only thing that will keep you from running from God is the fact that you can preach a good gospel sermon to yourself. When the day of evil comes, when Satan starts to lob these ridiculous lies into your life, when he does that, I mean, these ridiculous lies, if you're despicable to God, I mean, why are you even living? Why are you breathing someone else's air? I mean, what, what are you, what's the hope here? 
right? When these things happen, your only hope is to be able to preach a great gospel sermon to yourself. This is the idea. So let me ask you the question. How well can you preach the gospel to you? Do you know the gospel well enough to be able to preach it to yourself? Do you know the gospel that way? Do you know what you have and what you are in the gospel to the point that on the day of evil, you can clearly see the gospel and you can clearly preach the gospel to yourself? There's this um, legend uh, about Martin Luther back um, when he was kind of leading this reformation. God was really using him. This is the 1500s to reform the church. And he was under these constant attacks from Satan. And there's this legend that goes that one night he had a dream. He wakes up in the middle of this dream and Satan is in the room with him and he's got this scroll that he unleashes and he starts reading off this scroll. Martin Luther, you are shunned by God. Look at yourself. You're wordless. Your, Your prayerlessness. Your spiritlessness. Look at your anger. Look at your greed. Look at your life. You're, you're, you're shunned by God. God doesn't want you. And Martin Luther looked back and said, are you finished? And Satan said, no. He keeps reading. Look at your lust. Look at how prone you are to self-righteousness. He just keeps lobbing these, these flaming arrows into his heart. He asked again, are you finished? And finally Satan says, yeah, I'm, I think I've covered it here. And Luther looks back and says, You're right in all of your accounts, but you have left this out. Right across all of those accusations, the blood of Jesus. You need to be able to preach that to yourself. That that when accusations come, right? When you have failed for the 300th time, that it's covered. That all of your rebellion is covered. That your anger is covered. That your wordlessness is covered. That you falling to temptation, it's covered. That all of these things in the gospel, because of the righteousness of Christ, we can look at and say, it is covered. Can you preach that way to yourself? Can you convince yourself of that in the day of evil? Your ability to stand is dependent upon it. See, when we can start to preach this way to ourselves, we can start to sing these great gospel hymns. Like we can start to sing these words in Christ alone. You, you remember these words? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand, right? We can start to sing these words of the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less Then Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see this? When we start to preach these things, in the day of evil, we can sing along with before the throne of God when it says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Those are great gospel truths that we need to be able to preach to ourselves. Let's pray.
isn't, isn't the, the idea of the breastplate of righteousness, isn't that a beautiful thing? Is that God in Christ looks at that disinherited prince, readopts him and says, you are now presentable. You, you're no longer a peasant. I've restored you to being a prince, to being approved, to being a princess. Like I've restored that. So that we no longer have to look to cover ourselves with fig leaves, with all these man-made breastplates. How well you can perform. How well you parent. How your kids turn out. The state of your marriage. The acceptance of your mom and dad. The approval of a boyfriend, of a girlfriend. We no longer have to look to these things. That we've got this breastplate that, that protects all these vital organs. Everything we need to live, it protects. I mean, isn't it beautiful to, just to consider this fact that in the gospel, God becomes 100% irrevocably for us. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, now I want to make this just real plain though. The breastplate of righteousness is only provided for those who have trusted in Christ. Who have placed their faith in Christ. That's, that's the key. I mean, th- this is what, this is what makes the breastplate of righteousness available to you. And so if there's never been a moment where you have placed your faith in, where you have trusted, you've held up your life and said, God, my life is yours. I am throwing it all on the cross. It's all there. I'm trusting you with my life. I'm treasuring you. If you've never done that, this righteousness is not yours. You're still the disinherited prince until in faith you look at Jesus and you give him your life and treasure him with your heart. And at that moment, God becomes irrevocably for you. So men in the room, isn't it ridiculous to think that we've got this beautiful battle-tested breastplate that we can wear that makes us presentable to God? And yet we exchange that for fig leaves? Ladies, isn't it amazing that we would take this beautiful armor and cast it aside and we'll live for the approval, the fleeting approval of a man We'll live for the fleeting approval of our kids. We'll live for the fleeting approval of our marriage. When God says, I've made you presentable in Christ. I've approved you in Christ. You've got the approval of the one being in the universe, God, that really matters. I've adopted you. I've brought you back, given you everything that you lost. You've regained everything that... that, that was taken from you. This is the breastplate of righteousness. And I pray that we'll do the hard work of daily gospel discovery, that we'll do the hard work, the daily task of gospel preaching. So in in the day of evil, in the day of evil, the breastplate would be on that quenches every arrow of the enemy. Oh, may it be for us. May we see all that we have and all that we are in the gospel. God, we love you. We thank you for these beautiful truths, these life-altering realities.
God, we thank you for the unsearchable riches of the gospel that we can live in for eternity and not see the bottom of. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?